welcome to Tea with Tolkien, an online community for the Hobbit at Heart. We are inspired by the works, life, and Catholic faith of J.R.R. Tolkien, and strive to encourage others towards a deeper love and understanding of Tolkien's Legendarium by hosting a free book club, providing free resources such as our Silmarillion Reader's Guide, and cultivating a vibrant and positive community online. Our book club is currently reading through The Fall of Numenor. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, you can sign up for our book club at teawithtolkien.com book club to receive the link to our Discord server. Now for the sake of this book club, I've broken The Fall of Numenor down into 10 sections, and today we will be covering the second section. If you missed the first section's video, I will link to it in the description. These videos are going to begin with a summary of each section, followed by a recap of our book club's discussion at the end of this video for those who may have missed our chat. You can also find my more detailed notes at teawithtolkien.com blog. Part 2. Welcome to Numenor. Reading notes from Foundations of the Grey Havens through the Life of the Numenorians, pages 1 through 42. Year 1. Foundation of the Grey Havens and Linden. This section begins with a recap of the First Age. Beleriand is laid waste and many lands sink beneath the sea. The lands are reshaped and Linden is established. The Eldar are summoned to return to the west. Those who answer the summons dwell in the Isle of Erisea, the Lonely Island, in the haven called Avalone. The Eldar are summoned to return to the west, and those who answer the summons dwell in the Isle of Erisea, which means the Lonely Island. There they built the haven called Avalone. Some elves refused the summons and lingered in Middle-earth, unwilling yet to forsake the lands where they had fought and labored for so long. Tolkien calls this lingering a second fall, even though there was nothing technically wrong with their choices to stay behind, saying that they wanted to have their cake without eating it. The elves wanted to remain where their prestige was higher, where they had more freedoms, and those who remained became obsessed with fading and embalming. In this section, we get to hear a couple important name drops. Thranduil dwelt in Greenwood the Great, among the Sylvan Elves who remained. In Northern Linden was Gilgalad, son of Fingon, and Elrond. In Southern Linden dwelt Celeborn and Galadriel, and in Eregion was Celebrimbor. Tolkien writes that some of the Noldor went to Eregion to be closer to Moria, where they had learned that the dwarves had discovered Mithril. In this period, the friendship between dwarves and elves had reached its height. On Celeborn and Galadriel. This section includes a note from Christopher. He says, There is no part of the history of Middle-earth more full of problems than the story of Galadriel and Celeborn. He does, however, also write, Celeborn and Galadriel came to be regarded as the Lord and Lady of the Eldar in Eriador. We get a brief description of Galadriel where we learn that she is incredibly beautiful and wonderful and great, and she had the gift of insight into the minds of others. In this time, the elves built the Grey Havens called Mithlond on the shores of the Gulf of Flun. There they were still free to return to Erisea. Now the choice of the sons of Eärendil is mentioned here. Elrond chose to be counted among elvenkind, and Elros chose to be counted among men. It's also noted that the children of Elrond were also given the same choice. And Tolkien writes, For Elrond, therefore, all chances of the War of the Ring were fraught with sorrow. Year 32, the Edain reach Numenor. 
Tolkien writes, To the fathers of men of the three faithful houses, rich reward was also given. The Edain were descendants of the three tribes of men who had been friends and allies of the elves in the first age, the house of Beor, the house of Haleth, and the folk of Marak. They were offered a chance to escape Middle-earth by the Valar after they had helped out with the War of Wrath. Longer lifespan was given to them, but their mortality could not be revoked as that is the gift of Iluvatar. The Maya Ase raised the island of Numenor from the sea, and it was established by Aule, enriched by Ivana, and adorned with flowers and fountains by the Eldar. Numenor was located between Valinor and Middle-earth, but it was closer to Valinor. Names for Numenor. Andor, Elena, Starwards, Anadune, Westerness, and Numenore in the High Elderan Tongue. Now when it came time to depart, the Edain set sail from Middle-earth, guided by the Star of Earendil, which is also called Rothensil. This migration process took at least 50 years, and it ended only when Círdan would not provide any more ships or guides for the Edain. It is also noted here that Dúnedain is the Sindarin name for the Numenorians, and they were also called kings among men. The Ban of the Valar The Numenorians were forbidden to sail west out of sight of their own shores, or to attempt to set foot on the undying lands, and for a long time they were content with this ban. Numenor began technically in the Second Age 32 when Elros ascended to the throne in Armanalos. The kings would take their titles in the forms of Quenya or the High Elven Tongue. The Geography of Numenor Accurate maps of Numenor were destroyed at Numenor's downfall, so the map that we have is an estimation. But Numenor was shaped in a five-pointed star. The five points of the star were Forestor, Andustar, Hyarnustar, Hyarostar, and Orastar, and the central region was called the Middlemar. In the Middlemar was mostly pastures, but it also contained the Menaltarma, the Pillar of Heavens, a 3,000-foot-high sacred mountain that we'll learn about in just a minute. The Forestar was the least fertile part of Numenor, with rocky cliffs and many eagles. The Andustar had three small bays, lots of cliffs, great woods, and it was the home of the Bay of Aldana, which faced towards Erisea. There was the haven of Eldalonde, where the Eldar came most often. The Hyarnustar was a mountainous region with vineyards and rivers, and fisherfolk mostly dwelt here. In the Oristar, grain was grown, and there were many cliffs which were often wide enough to be habitable. At the end of this section, Tolkien writes, The whole land was so posed as if it had been thrust upward out of the sea, but at the same time slightly tilted southward. The Natural Life of Numenor Of Men and Beasts Numenor was for the most part uninhabited before the coming of the Edine. No elves or men had lived there before, but there were some animals. These animals did not fear men, and their relationships were friendly and respectful. The Edine had brought with them animals and plants, so it is difficult to say which were indigenous to the island. Of Bears and Men There was a very friendly relationship between the bears and men in Numenor. Tolkien writes, From the first, the bears exhibited friendship and curiosity towards the newcomers, and these feelings were returned. At such times, they were often offered honey to their delight. The bear dances. Most strange of all were the bear dances. Tolkien writes, 
To those not accustomed to the bears, the slow but dignified motions of the bears, sometimes as many as fifty or more together, appeared astonishing and comic. But it was understood by all admitted to the spectacle that there should be no open laughter. The laughter of men was a sound the bears could not understand. It alarmed and angered them. Of beasts of the woods, fields, and coasts. In this section is mentioned squirrels, badgers, swine, deer, hedgehogs, goats, horses, seals, hares, tortoises, and turtles. Of seawater and freshwater fish. In this section, we discussed whales, narwhals, dolphins, porpoises, salmon, and eels, all dwelt in Numenor, and sharks did not come close to the shores. Of birds. Numenor was filled with birds, but most importantly were the eagles, which were held sacred to Manwe. The Numenorians lived in harmony with the birds for the most part, and there was a huge abundance of birds near the sea, and there were less inland but still abundant. It's also noted in here that songbirds were not caged in Numenor because they didn't need to be. Of trees and plants. There were all kinds of trees and plants that grew in Numenor. We have elm, oak, maples, chestnut, walnut, apple, cherry, and pear all mentioned, as well as grapevines. But most importantly, I think, were the trees brought from the west. In this section, we learn about the Malanorne, which only grew in the region called Nisimaldar. This tree had a silver-smooth bark, leaves like a beech, which were pale green on top and silver on bottom, and turned gold in the autumn. There's an interesting connection between these trees and Lothlorien, which we'll discuss at the end of this video. Of the beasts and birds of the Edine. The Edine brought with them from Middle-earth sheep, dogs, horses, as well as fruit trees and grain. It's also noted that they had in Numenor geese, ducks, doves, pigeons, and they also brought over chickens from Middle-earth. The life of the Numenorians of cities. The chief city was called Andunie. Also important to note was Armenalos, which was over by the Meneltarma. Of belief and worship, Numenorians were monotheistic. The Meneltarma, the pillar of heavens, was a sacred mountain where the Numenorians would ascend and worship Eru at the top. No building or altar stood at its peak, and no one but the king was permitted to speak, and only then three times per year. The mountain was watched over by the eagles of Manwe. It's also mentioned in the section that Numenorians did not build temples until the coming of Sauron, and that temples had evil associations to the Numenorians. At the roots of the Meneltarma was the Valley of Tombs where the kings and queens of Numenor were buried. Of language. Adunaic, language of the West, was the language of the Numenorians. Nearly all Numenorians were bilingual, speaking Adunaic and Sindarin. Quenya was not commonly used except within families of high descent and official documents. The official names of places and members of the royal house were in Quenya. Of appearance and health. The Numenorians were exceptionally aware of and in control of their bodies. They were much more easily healed from injuries than the regular men of Middle-earth. Sickness was rare in Numenor until its latter years, and death was extremely uncommon in the first few centuries. Of aging and longevity. Long life and peace were the two things that the Adain asked for from the Valar. 
While Manway was wary of granting them a longer lifespan, this is a, ultimately what happened, and they were able to live much longer than ordinary men. They reached full growth much at the same rate as ordinary men, but they aged or wore out much more slowly. Of marriage and child raising. Numenorians were less interested in marriage than ordinary men. They were strictly monogamous, though not all married. Fertility was essentially the same as within normal humans, but with an adjustment for the Numenorean lifespan. Rarely do Numenorians have more than four children, and much like the Eldar, they avoided having children if they foresaw any impending separation likely within the family. Of appetites and behaviors. There were very few instances of crime in the early days, but this is not to say that there was no crime at all, because Tolkien writes, for they were not selected by any test save that of belonging to the three houses of the Edine. Of skills and crafts. The Numenorians couldn't bring a lot of tools or supplies over from Middle-earth in the beginning, but they did bring precious items such as gold, silver, and gems. There were some metals that could be found in Numenor, such as iron, copper, lead, and they liked to work with steel. Metal and smith work was popular, and swords were made even though they were not needed, due to the peace. Axes, spears, bows, and crossbows were made, though not intended for war. Of sports and pastimes. The Numenorians loved climbing, hiking, walking, swimming, diving, fishing, and shipbuilding. The women of Numenor loved to dance, but they weren't as fond of the sea as the men. However, it does seem that all Numenorians loved riding horses, and they took very good care of their horses. It's also noted that men preferred dogs, where women preferred the company of squirrels. In this section, we also learn that people from the Blessed Realm often visited and brought gifts. One of these gifts in particular was a seedling of Celeborn, the white tree that grew in Erisea. It was named Nimloth. At the end of this section, Tolkien writes of the bliss of Numenor. Thus the years passed, and while Middle-earth went backward and light and wisdom faded, the Dúnedain dwelt under the protection of the Valar and in the friendship of the Eldar, and they increased in stature, both of mind and body. Discussion Notes and Summary If you weren't able to join us for our live chat on Sunday evening, I wanted to share just a quick run-through of the major talking points that came up during our chat. Numenor as a Utopia a lot of us noted that Numenor was very reminiscent of Eden, especially in the way that they were able to exist in such harmony with nature, at least at first. Someone mentioned this quote from Tolkien. Certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. It's also in this way that we can see that both elves and men have lost their Eden, where the exiled elves have lost Valinor, and we're going to see, ultimately, the Dúnedain are going to lose Númenor. This isn't an allegory, but we thought it was interesting. For the most part, everyone in our discussion agreed that we would have loved to live in Númenor during its first few hundred years, although it may have been a little bit too happy and peaceful for some, and we also did want to acknowledge that it wasn't perfect entirely. There's almost like a childlike existence in the way that the Numenorians existed with nature in such harmony. The Numenorean harmony with nature could be seen as a sign of their goodness, 
which reflects the way that Tolkien's villains seek to abuse and dominate natural order in life. It reminded me of the way that Saruman is antagonistic towards the Ents in The Lord of the Rings, just as one example. The Dancing Bears of Numenor were the highlight of our discussion. They were clearly a fan favorite. We also discussed whether or not the bears have a connection with Bayorn as seen in The Hobbit, something which I think would make an excellent topic for a voice chat of its own. Discussion of Monwe. It was brought up that Monwe was nervous about the whole Numenorean project and seemed to keep a closer eye on them than any of the other Valar. We also talked about eagles and their association with Monwe, which sets them apart from other animals, such as bears. Absence of altars and temples in Numenor. There were no temples for Eru, which I think is very interesting, especially considering Tolkien's Catholic faith and the way that liturgy is very important to Catholicism. One user pointed out that it reminded them of the tabernacle of the Roman Hebrews. It's a sacred place where only Moses and the king, in the case of Numenor, can converse with the Lord. Once again, this isn't an allegory, but it did seem as if Tolkien was drawing from a little bit of biblical significance um, from the Old Testament. Connection of the Malinorne to the Malorn in Lothlorien. We talked about the relationship between the trees of the Golden Wood and of the Malinorne. Tolkien writes, Its fruit was a nut with a silver shale, and some were given as gift by Tar Aldarion, the sixth king of Numenor, to King Gilgalad of Linden. They did not take root in that land, but Gilgalad gave some to his kinswoman Galadriel, and under her power they grew and flourished in the guarded land of Lothlorien, beside the river Anduin, until the high elves at last left Middle-earth. But they did not reach the height or girth of the great groves of Numenor. So we thought it was very interesting that the trees of Lothlorien, despite being massive, were not as large as they were in Numenor. So that was kind of a cool thing to think about. We also discussed death in Numenor and world weariness. And Tolkien writes, The first approach of world weariness was indeed for them a sign that their period of vigor was nearing its end. When it came to an end, if they persisted in living, then decay would, as growth had done, soon proceed at more or less the same rate as for other men. I think this will be important to keep in mind as we get towards the end of Numenor's history and we see their struggle with mortality. Elvish Motivations for Remaining in Middle-Earth Why did some elves remain in Middle-Earth? I think they had a few reasons. They wanted to remain higher in status with more freedoms and prestige in Middle-Earth than they would have had returning to the West. They had also fought very hard for these lands and they didn't want to abandon them. There would also be consequences for Middle-Earth if the elves would have left because, as we can see, an evil is growing. It also seemed like the Valar had abandoned Middle-Earth for a time. Now, why did the elves only return so far as Erisea? Why didn't they go all the way to Valinor? In the Waldman letter, Tolkien writes, The exiled elves were, if not commanded, at least sternly counseled, to return into the west and there be at peace. They were not to dwell permanently in Valinor again, but in the lonely isle of Erisea, within sight of the blessed realm. Now, just as a recap for those of you who may not be familiar with the different groups of elves and their locations and their travels, all elves were originally invited to Valinor in the very beginning when they had first awoken. Some accepted and made it all the way and stayed in Valinor. Some made it halfway but then lingered and remained in Middle-earth. Some journeyed all the way to Valinor but then went back, rebelled against the Valar, and came back to Middle-earth, 
and these are the Noldor. Not all of the Noldor did this, but a large group of them did. Along the way, they ended up uh, getting into a little kinslaying and committing some crimes, and so Mondos pronounced his doom upon them, which is more of a judgment and less like a curse, but because of this, they could not return to Valinor. We also talked about the problem of canon, which seems to be something that continually comes up as we're discussing the Second Age in particular because of how many different drafts and versions Tolkien has written and the abundance of material that we have published in Unfinished Tales and such. I think we need to look at the Legendarium as more of a mythology than a series of novels, and the way that it evolves is going to end up producing different versions of similar stories, but we need to kind of try to look at it all as one story. Um, and it's not really about picking the correct version. I think um, things just get a little bit muddier as we go. Um, and this is something that we're going to continue discussing in our Discord as we move along. But I think this is kind of a uniquely Tolkien problem. And I have really enjoyed hearing everyone's opinions on it. The last discussion topic that we had that I wanted to mention was that the Valar are not a Christian allegory. They're more similar to the pantheonic gods than anything Christian, and while they are angelic beings and Melkor is an easy comparison to Satan, I do think that comparison ends with him. There is no one-to-one -one parallel to the Valar to different angels. We talked about St. Michael, and is he kind of like Monwe? And I do think it's similar, but I don't think that there's any way to say that Tolkien may be meant for this to be a comparison that's made. I think this is one of the situations where we know Tolkien was inspired by his own faith, but I think he was also inspired by a lot of different sources of mythology and um, just something to keep in mind that I don't think this is in any way allegorical. Now, before we wrap up, I just wanted to say thank you to our patrons for making all of these free resources possible, including this book club. Janet, Brian, Kathy, Susan, Libby, Stan, Gideon, John, Megan, Beth, Lumen Fide, Alan, Lacey, Chris, Michelangelo, Brian, Scott, Hannah, Sarah, Jim, and Susan, Jonathan, Carol, Carrie, Amanda, Jerome, Matt, Marianne, Catherine, Jane, Evelyn, Rebecca, The Tolkien Road, Matt, Teresa, Michael, Zach, Evelyn, Miracle Haven Garden, and Julian. And I'd like to thank our Discord premium supporters, Dawn and Higgy. If you'd like to support Tea with Tolkien by becoming a patron, you can learn more at patreon.com slash teawithtolkien. Now, next week, we will be chatting about pages 43 through 65, which makes up part three of Fall of Numenor. Again, you can learn more about our book club at teawithtolkien.com slash book dash club. I will also be adding all of the links mentioned in our chat in the description. I'll also be leaving all of the links mentioned throughout the chat last week in our description, as well as in the Discord chat. Thanks so much for listening. I hope this was helpful, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and opinions on the fall of Numenor. If you have any questions for our group, or if you'd like to join us, we will be hanging out in the Tea with Tolkien Discord server. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you all soon. Mm -hmm.